Hello, and welcome to Poll Quotes, a podcast from the Ryerson Review of Journalism. I'm Laura Howells. And I'm Jacob McNair. There's a topic journalists often won't touch, suicide. Prevention groups urge reporters to be cautious. There's concerns that media coverage could romanticize suicide and encourage copycats. And police are usually tight-lipped when people take their own lives. But attitudes have been changing. And Susan Claremont is one journalist who believes these stories often need to be told. Susan is a columnist at The Hamilton Spectator, and over the course of her career, she's told several stories of people who've died by suicide. Last month, Susan and The Spectator published a project called Lives Left Behind. They invited people who'd lost someone to suicide to come in, have their photo taken, and share their loved one's story. Well, 36 people and one dog showed up. And what resulted was a powerful piece of journalism. Last week, Jacob spoke to Susan. They talked about why she believes we need to be more open to covering suicide and how to do that responsibly. And you'll hear that conversation in just a moment. For the Ryerson Review of Journalism, this is Poll Quotes. Thanks for listening. Susan, thanks so much for joining us. I'm happy to be here. So I, I want to start with this photo project that The Spectator recently published. Tell us about Left Behind. What was it and what was the inspiration behind the project? Left Behind came about after a very long feature story that I published a few months ago. That was a story about a young woman named Nicole Patnode. She was 20 years old and um, mentally ill. And she jumped off a, a bridge onto Highway 403 in Hamilton and, and took her own life. And the story that I wrote looked at her death, but more importantly, her life and her struggles and her family's um, amazing willingness to, to share their story. That piece touched a lot of people. I had a huge, huge reaction from readers um, after the story appeared. And many of those people wanted to share their own stories about suicide. Lots of people who had lost loved ones uh, to suicide uh, wanted suddenly to tell their stories. And I couldn't possibly tell each of those stories. And definitely not in the same in-depth way that I had um, told Nicole's story, that story took months and months of work. Um, but I felt really compelled to, to find a way to share those stories. And that's how the idea um, for the Left Behind Project came about. And why did families say they wanted to take part in a project like this? You know, everybody had different reasons. But the most common one I heard was so that other families who are struggling with uh, with issues of mental illness and suicide knew that they weren't alone. They would know that other families were, were grieving as well and had gone through this. So that was very, very powerful. Um, but there were also, you know, people who wanted to share their stories because they wanted us to know the person they'd lost. Um, they wanted us to know how remarkable they were, how funny they were, how brilliant they were, how loved they were. So people each came with their own reasons, um, but they were all 
I think inspired by the the need to the need to to tell their stories, the need to to share their experience with the public. And were there any stories that particularly resonated with you? Oh gosh, they all did. Um, I have to say, we I, I did this project with uh, Spectator photojournalist Gary Yokoyama, and we did a number of sessions where we we simply put out a call to the public and said, you know, we're we're setting a, a up a a pop up studio in the Spectator's auditorium. We'll be there <clears throat> on these days at these times. Uh, come share your your photos and stories with us, and uh, I. I think I was in tears constantly through that whole process. Everybody who came in um, touched my heart. Uh, There was one woman who uh, was about the one year anniversary of the death of her husband. She happened to be about the same age as me. So I think that resonated with me. Uh, She brought in his, his kilt. He was a Scotsman who participated in Highland Games and she came in just because he was such a cool guy that he wanted she wanted us to to know about him and and she wanted to to share her husband with everyone there was another family who was parents and a son and they had lost their teenage daughter to suicide and they told me that it had happened in July and i thought that they meant July of 2016. And I said, Oh, gosh, so you've just, you know, had the anniversary. And they said, No, no, like, she died just a few weeks ago. And I, I, I couldn't believe that they were already thinking about sharing their story and, and the ability it might have to heal or help another family. And so what you have here essentially is 36 stories of suicides which didn't make it into the papers or or maybe they received only cursory coverage do you think that um the people who complete suicide and their loved ones are being done a disservice by the news with the attention that they aren't getting um i don't think any of them had been covered in in my newspaper except for one and that was nicole patnode her mother came and participated in the Left Behind Project. So we had written that story. And and I also just want to say that the that the purpose of the Left Behind Project wasn't to focus on the suicide. It was to focus on the lives that were lost. Um, in fact, we, we never talked at all about how any of those people died. You know, I, I don't know that we need to write about every suicide. And in fact, on a... Uh, on a very practical level, as harsh as it may sound, it's impossible to write about every suicide. Our newspaper would have that kind of coverage, you know, almost every day. So that's unfortunate. I I think there is a time and a place for stories about suicide. Um, I have never written a story about a suicide without the permission of the family. If I'm going to use names, if I'm going to to write any kind of a substantial story with any kind of detail, uh, I, I need to do it with the blessing and cooperation of the family. That's not a spectator policy. That's my policy. That's how I like to do these stories. And I have written quite a few of these over the years, and each is for a different reason. 
you know, I'm, I'm, I have another story that will be in The Spectator soon, um, another one about suicide that focuses on different aspects of our healthcare system and, and brings out some different issues that I haven't written about before. So it, it's not writing about suicide for the sake of writing about suicide or um, so that we can say we've covered all of them. It's about what can we learn from this? What's the story here? And what is the family hoping um, that the story might do? And you were saying that you do, you go over the story with the families before it goes to print and you, you try to get their blessing. Right. I, I'm, I would want the family to be on board with me at the very beginning of the process of, of reporting and writing a story like that. The stories that I've done on suicide have been uh, long-term projects. They've been investigative pieces. They've been big. And in each of those cases, the family has worked with me for weeks, if not months, so that I understand um, the person at the center of the story. Uh, but my own personal policy when it comes to sharing details, most newspapers, any newspaper I've worked for, uh, has a policy that is you can't show your story to anybody before it's published, anybody outside of the newsroom. And so I don't. Uh, I've never handed a copy of my story over to anybody. But on sensitive stories, I will routinely go over the story in a lot of detail with the, the people involved in it so that um, for a few reasons. One is so that there are no surprises, that they don't open the newspaper and um, are shocked by what they read. They'll, they'll know everything before it hits the paper. Um, it's also for accuracy. You know, if I've made a mistake, I want to be able to correct it before it's published. So it, it's a great way of fact checking for me as well. Have you ever run into an instance where someone was hesitant to give their blessing to the article, maybe because they didn't like what it said about them? Uh, yeah, sure. That's happened. That happens on all kinds of stories, <laughs> suicide or otherwise. And it is a fine line. I'm not writing a story in the hopes that the person I'm writing about loves every bit of it. I have um, an obligation to be to be fair, but also to be honest and accurate. And sometimes that means uh, writing things that that the people in my story or their families might not want to hear. I write about tough stuff, and that can include, um, you know, facing some of the harsh realities um, about the people I'm, I'm writing on. But I think in my experience, if I have an honest discussion with people and explain to them why I've chosen to include those sorts of details in my story, um, I and I, I like to think that when I include those details, I do it in a um, responsible way and in uh, a respectful way. People usually understand what it's all about. They might not like it at first, but after some discussion, we can usually get around to it. But that's not always the case. I have had times when people have been upset or angry at me for, for what I've written um, for you know one sentence in a in a long, long story. And that bothers me when that happens. But that's also the reality of, of being a journalist. Just in general, so many journalists and papers avoid writing about suicide, just 
as a blanket, either informal or formal policy. Why is it important to you that these kind of stories do get told? Well, there was a time when newspapers um, just didn't write about suicide, period. And we've come a long way since that. I've seen it change a lot in my own career. And I've always pushed back and um, and felt very strongly that there is that there are good reasons for writing about suicide. You know, how are we going to fix this? How are we going to understand this? How are we going to improve? mental health care and suicide prevention if we don't talk about it, if we don't acknowledge that it exists, if we don't break down the stigma that's involved with with mental illness um, that says these are, are taboo subjects that we shouldn't talk about. There is no shame in mental illness, and, and I don't think that there's any shame in suicide either. These are People who, um, in in the vast majority of cases, have an illness, and why are we shying away from that? You know, and I, I think society as a whole is becoming more open and honest about the issue, and I think journalism has has come a long way. Are we all the way there yet? No, we're not. But I think my newsroom for sure and other newsrooms are definitely having important conversations and debates and sometimes heated arguments about how to cover this stuff, when to cover it, um, how to cover it, and why we're covering it. Is there anything in particular in terms of changes in suicide reporting in Canada, apart from just the willingness to report um, what have you seen change in the reporting over your career? That's a good question. Um, I, I now I now get people asking me to do these stories about their family members. That didn't happen 25 years ago. Um, when I started my career, I could talk someone into doing a story like that. I could approach them and ask them and explain to them why I wanted to do it and and oftentimes they would, but now people are coming to me and, and asking for their stories to be told. And I think that's huge. I think that says so much about their comfort level with sharing their, their message publicly. You know, having said that though, I, I think it's interesting that even some of the families that I've written about, when you read the obit in the paper, you know, we, we still shy away from the word suicide, right? It's it's died suddenly or um, died by mental illness is a, a phrase I hear sometimes. Um, we seem to still have a bit of a stigma around that word suicide. I don't know whether you remember, but like when was the first time someone came to you and said, I would like you to tell this story? The, the first one that that came to me was a woman named Sharon Jones and her husband, Roy, uh, was a Hamilton police officer who died by suicide. And I covered his suicide when it happened. He uh, took his own life while on duty. He uh, drove to a park uh, in Hamilton and used his service weapon and, and shot himself. 
And when Roy died, um, I wrote uh, a very short story about his death and did not name him in the story. I knew who he was. I, I knew his name, but I had not been able to connect with his family. And and so a decision was made by myself and, and my editors that we would write it without naming him. And, and it was there wasn't a lot of detail in that story. On the 10th anniversary, sorry, I believe it was the fifth anniversary of his, of his suicide, his widow called me. I had never spoken to her before. We, we had never talked. And she called me and said, um, I think it's time for me to tell Roy's story. And that was um, significant for me in a lot of ways. It was, first of all, um, the first time I had done a, a long, in-depth story about a police officer's suicide. I've done others since. But at the time that Roy had died, uh, Hamilton police were, were very angry with the spectator for writing anything at all about his suicide. And I got um, messages from the chief of police and, and others within the service telling me to, to back off, that it was nobody's business. Um, police officers canceled their subscription to the spectator. And then here we are five years later. And um, the very woman that they thought that they were protecting comes to me and says she wants to tell her story. So uh, that was a, a real pivotal moment for me that a police officer's wife uh, was willing to share her story. It was a real clear message to police officers in general. And, and her point in wanting to tell Roy's story was very much that Police officers work in a culture that is different from from most others, and she wanted officers to know and and their families to know that if you need help, get it. Um, and there's no clearer example of of what happens when you don't than than what happened to Roy Jones. And that story that I wrote uh, went on to win a national newspaper award. Um, which I also found, uh, I, I found satisfying in a lot of ways. Um, but, you know, here I work in, in this industry and this culture that for a long time had said, don't write about suicides. And now a story about a suicide um, won a national newspaper award. And you have written, you, you have covered more than one um, police officer's suicide. What makes it more challenging than reporting on uh, civilians' suicide? Uh, it, it goes back again to that police culture. Um, although it's that culture is changing a lot. Traditionally, it has been, you know, what happens with, with police officers should stay amongst police officers. It, it's part of their policing family and um, it should be kept private. Police officers have traditionally felt that that they need to be warriors, that they need to be always strong, that they need to be, um, you know, uh, above uh, um, any kind of almost above any kind of flaw. And mental illness has always been seen in the policing culture as a flaw. You know, it's difficult because while police leaders are saying that they 
want to deal with this issue and that they want to be supportive of officers who need help. Um, there is uh, the reality that a police officer with, with mental health issues, it, it can infect their job. Um, it, it can mean that they're taken off the street or, or that they're you know, assigned to other duties. So it's it's difficult, and we've we've gone a long way towards making changes. Um, and I think stories like the one about Roy Jones has has been a contributing factor to that. And th- and there's also other kinds of stigma, like the way that a, the police force treats a death by suicide. There is. Um, I can speak for Hamilton police. Uh, if an officer dies by suicide, whether they are on duty or off duty at Hamilton police, there is no formal police funeral. Um, I think we've all seen images of, of police funerals where there's um, a procession, where there's an honor guard, where people attend in uniform, where um, there's a lot of pomp and circumstance. And that has to be approved by the chief of police. And in each of those cases in in Hamilton, I've written about, um, uh, let me see, one, two, three, four, at least four Hamilton police suicides. In none of those cases have they been given a formal police funeral. And stepping back outside the police force, uh, what kind of resistance do you face in reporting frankly about suicides? Um, anytime I write a story about suicide, um, I, I do get blowback from the public. I'm encouraged by the fact, though, that the balance is shifted. Um, when I wrote stories about suicide earlier in my career, I would say that most readers were resentful of it and critical of it. Um, and now it has tipped in the other direction. When I wrote the story about Nicole Patno, who who jumped off the bridge, the positive feedback was unbelievable. The feedback in general was enormous. Um, I I don't know that I've ever written anything that's had such a a huge reaction from readers, Um, but the vast, vast majority of it was positive. I will say that one suicide prevention um, group from Kitchener-Waterloo, I believe, thought that I shouldn't have written it at all and uh, cited journalism guidelines about um, uh, reporting on suicide and basically thought that that story should never have been told. I just disagree. And, and, you know, I've heard all those arguments. I've sat down and talked with people about, about, you know, that others will be encouraged to take their own lives, the copycat suicides, that it's glamorizing suicide, all that sort of stuff. And I just, I don't buy it and I don't agree with it. And, um, uh, and I'm lucky that I have a newspaper that, that supports me when I write these stories. And even with a non-police officer, suicide, the police themselves are also hesitant to talk to reporters about, about deaths by suicide. Isn't that right? It's true. I think what you're, you may be referring to is um, when I was starting out on the Nicole Patnode story, it was, uh, it was impossible to get police to be clear about what had happened to her. Nicole jumped off a bridge onto um, one of the busiest highways 
um, that makes its way through Hamilton. And she did it uh, at rush hour, causing thousands and thousands of motorists to come to a standstill. It backed up traffic for hours and hours around the city. So Hamilton people were very aware that something had happened that day. And and that's really where this story all began from. Um, It was a very public suicide. And in a strange turn of events, uh, our one of our photographers, uh, photojournalist Barry Gray, actually wound up on top of the bridge that Nicole jumped from before police ever got there. It, it, he just was looking for a vantage point to to take a a picture of the traffic backed up on the highway, and he found Nicole's shoes and her her sweater sitting on that bridge, and he immediately knew that what had happened here, that this was someone who jumped. Um, however, police in their official um, news release said that it was a pedestrian who had been struck by a vehicle, which I, I suppose that's true, but that wasn't really what happened. It wasn't that she was walking across the street and was struck by by a truck. She jumped in front of that truck. Um, so we had the head start because of the observations of our photographer. And then, um, of course, I found Nicole's obit in our own newspaper a couple of days later and put two and two together. But I didn't want to go straight to the family. I was trying to avoid that. I was trying to be sensitive and careful about my dealings with, with the family. So I went to the OPP who were in charge of that accident scene, that death, and asked, um, can you confirm if, if this was a suicide? And they would not. They refused to do that. So I asked, could you talk to the family and ask the family if you can confirm to me that it was a suicide? And, and the officer said that, yes, he would do that. But I found out later, after waiting and not getting any response from police, and by now I had contacted the Patno family and told them what I was hoping to do. You know, by the way, the Patno family said, thank you for for contacting us we are so pleased that you did you're the only person who's contacted us um we felt like nobody cared about nicole and yes we'd be happy to tell you her story so it was when i was sitting at the kitchen table in the pat note house and they were you know bringing out all their photos of nicole and sharing their stories of nicole it was only then that i learned that the opp had never asked them if, if for permission to um, release publicly the fact that it was a suicide. And when I told Nicole's mother, Carol, the story about the OPP, she was very angry, very angry. She said, um, why are they making decisions for me? Why is it up to them to decide? You know, why didn't they ask me? And, and then I could make up my own mind about whether I wanted it released or not. So that was interesting because I think it's very difficult for journalists to to approach a family. We never know what the reaction is going to be. But that was a reminder that um, that there are families who want to talk and want to share their stories and maybe a good lesson for police as well. What duty do you think journalists have in particular in changing this culture of silence about suicide? I think we have a duty to to tell stories, um, to give families a voice. 
you know, I, I think I said earlier that there is no shame in, in mental illness. There's no shame in suicide. And those actually aren't my words. Those are words that I've, I've stolen from Carol Patineau. And she said that to me the first time that we met. I was, I was so moved by that. I learned so much from her saying that to me. Her daughter was, was ill, and why should her family be embarrassed by that in any way? And if telling Nicole's story can help somebody else, then it wasn't all in vain. So asking if we can tell the stories and, and telling them, I, I think it's, it's that simple for journalists and, and telling it in a responsible way, remembering why we're telling the story, that we're not telling a story so that we can all hear the, the sordid details of a, of a terrible death, telling the story so that we can help those who are living and remember the person that we've lost. So in fulfilling that duty, what should reporters be mindful of when they're trying to report responsibly on suicide? I do try to emphasize the life lived rather than the method of suicide. Having said that, sometimes the method of suicide is a really important part of the story. For example, uh, one of the Hamilton police officers that I wrote about who died by suicide snuck his his police gun home with him and used it to take his own life. And that raised questions about safety and about, um, you know, how police lock their guns up at the end of a shift and how they're accounted for and that sort of thing. So, so in that case, um, I think there were important issues raised um, and lessons to be learned from how he took his life. I think it is important to always include in stories methods of, of help, ways people can get help. So anytime I write about suicide, you'll see some kind of a fact box that goes with it with helpline numbers and, and um, uh, you know, pointing to websites and that sort of thing where people can go for help. Um. I think it's important to include the family whenever possible. Um, in my experience, again, the families have lived through um, through a lot before they even get to the point of the suicide. They have struggled to find help. They have struggled to understand. They have struggled to... Um, to cope with what's going on with their loved one. And there are lots of lessons to be learned there as well. So I think, you know, being open-minded, trying to see it from all different views. Um, I've, I've worked with a lot of families who are very angry at our healthcare system for not being there, for not being able to save their loved one. But I've also spent lots and lots of time talking to doctors and hospitals about the challenges they face. So this isn't about blame. Maybe that's the biggest lesson to, to take out of this for journalists. Um, these don't have to be stories that say, here's where it all went wrong and here's who to blame. These are really complicated stories. Uh, I don't think anybody, nobody I've written about 
has died by suicide because of one certain thing. It's about a whole bunch of things, a whole bunch of issues. And I think making improvements also is about complicated things and and fixing a lot of things and looking at a lot of issues. Could you comment on the concerns of language when you're reporting on suicide? Sure. Uh, I think you and I have both been very careful to uh, about our language around this. You will not hear me say committed suicide. And I would hope that other journalists aren't using that phrase anymore either. Committed suicide goes back to a time when uh, suicide was a crime. And just like, just as, you know, you commit a crime, you committed suicide. So um, changing it to died by suicide, I think using the language that, um, that families find appropriate and that doctors find appropriate, I think is really important. And if in doubt, I, I ask, I ask family members, what, what terms do you use? Um, what terms are you comfortable with? And sometimes, um, you know, I'll, I'll even have a paragraph or two in, in my story that explains why I'm using certain terms. So I think that is very important, but also not shying away from the word suicide. You know, uh, talking about sudden deaths or died by mental illness. I know that's a popular one, but as, as a journalist, that one doesn't work for me because I, I just don't think it's accurate. I think suicide is simple and clear and explains the situation. That was Susan Claremont from The Hamilton Spectator. Covering suicide is a sensitive issue, and there are different views about the right way to do it. For more perspectives and resources, visit our website at rrj.ca. There, you can also hear more from our conversation with Susan and listen to Jacob's interview with Carol Patinode, who Susan talked about on the show. And we'd like to hear from you, too. Send us an email at pullquotes at ryerson.ca and follow us on Twitter at Ryerson Review. Also, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Pull Quotes is produced by Emily Pardo, Jacob McNair, and me, Laura Howells. Our executive producers are Sonia Fada and Stephen Trumper. Technical assistance by Angela Glover. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.